Hi there, and Merry Christmas from John and I here at Two Texts. As we take a break over Christmas time, we thought you might like to catch up with a few bonus episodes that we did last year. Perhaps you've only started listening this year, so missed them. So to save you having to scroll back through all those episodes, we're going to repost them this week to give you a chance to listen in and think about Christmas and how different texts of the Bible might enlighten the story for you. We'll be back in the new year on the 10th of January, continuing our Acts series. But until then, have a Merry Christmas from us. Hello, John. Christmas is coming. We're in Advent yeah. right now. And you and me wanted to just chat a little bit about some of the stories that we find at the early pages of, of uh, Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. Mary, Joseph, all of those sort of stories. And today, we want to talk about Mary. Absolutely. Magnificent. And I think we're, we're helped by Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke clearly sort of mm. leans into Mary as primary source material for his birth narrative. Mm. And... Uh, I'm sure our listeners are aware of this, and Matthew leans into Joseph. So you get, by putting Matthew and, and Luke together, you get a lovely complement to the story, but very much from a male Jewish point of view in in Matthew, and very, very much from a female, and you could even argue marginalised point of view, slightly marginalised point yes. of view from Luke. That might be pushing it a bit too hard, but it, Luke's version is absolutely beautiful. So we... we would you like me to read the uh, the story, David, and we'll get cracked into well, it? Yeah, well, I mean, the, you've said too many things already that I want to jump in and discuss. So, <laughs> 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 the, uh, so I'm going to ask you about them before we get to the text. Let's, let's build okay. the tension before we get <laughs> to the loop. I was thinking about Mary as marginalized. By the time they make it to the temple with the baby Jesus, they they offer an mm. offering of of yeah. some of some some birds, Dubs. don't they, yeah. uh, as part yeah. of Jesus's dedication, which we know from. Old Testament text that would imply yeah. that, that that they were not financially well off. That, that's so. So actually, at very least, Mary is. You've got a priest in in Zechariah making the announcement, but at least Mary and Joseph are not from high echelons of society. Yeah. Is that, do yeah, you think absolutely. that's fair to say? Oh, totally, totally agree with that. And they they do bring, according to the Torah, the offering of the poor, and mm -hmm. that's a lovely little subtext in there mm -hmm. within that context. And of course. It, both Joseph and Mary hailed from Galilee. Galilee would have been really hard subsistence type lifestyle, hand to mouth type yes. lifestyle. In the, in the world of first century Israel, the rich were rich, the poor were poor, and there were very few people in the middle. And I mm. think Joseph and Mary reflect that in that, in that context that they are probably hand to mouth living hand to mouth mm -hmm. in the context of their world. And and the world of Jesus, if you didn't work, essentially, unless you were born into wealth, if you didn't work, you didn't eat. Mm. So, so yeah, you, you get those lovely little reflections. There's a beautiful sense mm. that when you look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, we're told that Elizabeth was barren and she was old. And, and it's sort of a double whammy there. But Luke also says, oh, and by the way, she was a righteous woman. And he, he's mm -hmm. defending mm -hmm. her her position through her righteousness. And then you get Mary, favoured of the Lord. Uh, the Lord has mm -hmm. come to you in this incredible moment of favour. There's something about you attracting him. And yet clearly Mary and Joseph are not in the higher echelons of society. So you've got mm -hmm. you've got this lovely juxtaposition of a righteous person that needs freedom from barrenness. And then you've got in in the context of her culture. And then you've got this sort of 
um, poor person that's yeah. highly favoured and called, and they're both from slightly different directions, called mm-hmm. into the centre of this incredible story. So there are, there are some beautiful, beautiful subtext sort of ideas that are just hanging around the, 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 the birth narrative. And and so then just cranking up the pressure of all the things that you've said, um, <laughs> and we've not even got to the text yet. Women preachers. One of our listeners got in touch with us just recently <laughs> and asked, well, where do you stand on women preachers? And obviously, avoiding controversial topics is good for a wide listener base. But I feel like Luke set something up for us really mm. early in his gospel by actually not just locating women centrally in the story, but making women key announcers of what Jesus is doing. So my two cents is I'm 100% behind uh, women preachers because I think that it is in keeping with the gospel traditions to, to see that the gospel is taught and announced and proclaimed. Uh, and I think if we start to draw lines between preaching and teaching and pastoring, I think we're inventing categories now mm. at that stage. Mm. Shepherds feed flocks. You'd be a weird shepherd if you looked after the flock but never fed them. Yeah. You start stretching things. So for yeah. me personally, I'm 100% behind women teaching and preaching and, and, and being involved in the life of the church. And I actually think that, that Luke shows you with the dominant place that women hold in the announcement of the gospel, that that's actually in keeping with the way of Jesus. So that's my kind of two cents on that. Do you want to dive into that controversy with oh, anything I, else? I, one, 100% agree. I, I think Dr. Luke positions women incredibly positively throughout his narrative, both in the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So you have women in the upper room receiving the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. Uh, in, Acts, in Luke chapter 8, you've got women who are clearly identified as uh, disciples of Jesus and supporters of his ministry out of their own wealth. That's all going on there. You've got the image of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus in the house of her sister Martha, which is unmissable rabbinic position in terms of that. And then you've got women announcing the resurrection. One of our favourite stories, Luke 24, a gorgeously unique two on the road to a mess. Everybody assumes it's two men. I suspect it's a man and a woman traveling back mm-hmm. uh, to their same to sit to their same home and and I wouldn't be surprised if that was now of course I'm arguing from silence there but that would fit really very much with the trajectory of Luke and of course not only do you get women announcing the resurrection in Luke you have the whole of the birth narrative of Jesus essentially based mm-hmm. on the witness statement of a woman which in a mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. century world context to have a woman as your primary witness statement is saying mm-hmm. something quite controversial, but also something very affirmative about women themselves. So mm-hmm. Luke begins as he wishes to carry on, and you've yes. got women, righteous women, uh, women attracting the favour of God, and women who know the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And when we get into the Song of Mary, my goodness gracious me, this is a serious presentation of, of Bible knowledge yes. from this young girl that stands up and holds its own against Zechariah's prophecy later on in chapter mm-hmm. one. Uh, a priest, a man trained in the scriptures, and her, what we call Magnificat, is is as mm-hmm. rocking as his prophetic uh, utterance. So a yes. lot going on there that if our listeners are prepared to slow down, there's a lot of beautiful breadcrumbs being dropped here by Dr. Luke. Mm-hmm. And he's hoping that we will pick them up and follow the trail. And if you follow that trail, it is an unmissable af- affirmation 
and elevation and emancipation of women in the Lucan text. And I think it's important to kind of get those things out and frame them early because it helps us as we jump into the conversation. Mm. So sure. one more piece, because you said a lot that I said you you, you dived this into. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't so realize one I more piece. that much to you. <laughs> <laughs> one more piece then that we just, let's just deal with this now. Let's just go from one controversy to the next and then we'll jump to the Bible and, <laughs> and sort everything out. I grew up in Protestant Scotland. You grew up mm. in Protestant Northern Ireland. Kind of sometimes it almost feels like People from our sort of backgrounds are almost a little scared to talk of Mary because Mary's a Roman Catholic thing. And I, what do you want to say to that? Well, I, I think genuinely I came from a Protestant background in Northern Ireland. The Roman Catholic tradition would hold Mary as the mother of God. And because my Protestant tradition rejected that idea, we unfortunately seem to reject any other reference to Mary, which I found back then, even as a as a, a teenager in church, and certainly as I studied the scriptures and studied Luke, I, I found that completely tragic. Mary is one of the most magnificent, outstanding women in the whole of human history. She is mm. blessed in a unique way in that she is the only woman in human history to birth God in flesh, mm. And therefore, she does have incredible, unique and special status. But as Mary recognises herself, she she is a weak and broken vessel. She is a, a sinner that needs a saviour. And that's in her own words, in the context mm. of that. But she stands in the most amazingly privileged position in, in the New Testament. And I think I would appeal to anyone. I don't think Mary wants us to worship her, but I don't think mm. the Lord wants us to ignore her. And I think we should yes. we should celebrate Mary. We should elevate Mary to a, a, a status of of her unique position as a human. But we must not deify Mary to a position that is beyond her station. And and I think mm. one that she would not identify. And certainly, if we're if we're going to be if we're without being offensive to any part of Christendom. One, yes. uh, uh, the deification of Mary does not seem to be supported any in any shape or form throughout the scriptures. So, so it's mm. that sense of mother of Jesus, one hundred percent, and a unique mother, and a unique birth, and a unique son, mother of God, maybe not in my opinion, but a woman mm. to be celebrated and elevated in our thinking because she's a magnificent woman. I often think that what happens between the different parts of Christendom is a lot of misunderstanding. So in my experience, a lot of Protestants think Catholics believe things that they don't. And then a lot of Roman Catholics think that Protestants believe things that we don't. For me, I'd say where I was really helped with it was... Um, a conversation with a Roman Catholic priest once wherein it was said, the problem is you you uh, Roman Catholics make too much of Mary, to which his response was, maybe, but you yeah. Protestants don't make enough of her. And, and I would say that that statement there probably reflects the two sides, that, that actually we, we've all gotten a little disconnected perhaps at times from just the huge role that that Mary plays in scripture and therefore the True. significance of that. So I felt it was worth saying so that that's not kind of just the elephant in the, I was yeah. going to say in the room, but we're not in the same room, but the elephant nope. in, in the podcast. So yep. we've kind of jumped through some pretty big things there, which actually are really important to lean into or today's podcast. And then, and then the next one where, where we unpack some of the things that happened to yeah, for sure, Mary. For sure. Um, yeah. 
And at minus 13, the elephant would definitely die in your room, David. So Yes, that is true. So, the uh, elephant would not know, he, well he or she would just about survive in mine, but definitely die in yours, <laughs> man. It just wouldn't help. <laughs> so that then, by way of preamble, the preamble to a podcast, brings us to Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Come on, let's uh, do this. Let's do this. And so let's do what we said we should do, which is jump into the text. Okay, here we go. In the sixth month... Of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you were to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked. The angel, since I am a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. That's John the Baptist, the baby. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfil his promises to her. And let's leave that there, John, and we'll come back to Mary's response to that in the next episode, right? Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely uh, beautiful. And I I think one of the challenges, David, here is that this is such a familiar story to many, many people. Mm. So even if you're not a Jesus follower, most people, certainly (laughs) if they've been raised in a sort of a Western context have probably bumped into this story at some point, either yes. through school or or whatever. And certainly yes. for, for people who are more serious followers of Jesus, this feels just so familiar that we're probably in danger yeah. of missing some of the beautiful detail within that. Would, would, would that be fair yeah. in terms of, yeah. well, I think I know what this means sort of context? I mean, is it, I mean, it's very difficult to get to Christmas and not and not encounter this story in one way or another, right? I mean, do you have 
a nativity scene? Have you seen a nativity scene? <laughs> you know, do you do you have an angel on your Christmas tree? Why do you have angels on your Christmas tree? Or this story right here is why you have angels on your Christmas tree. So even if you've never heard somebody read the 26th verse of Luke chapter 1 and following, you have almost guaranteed if you are an English speaker that you will have encountered. I mean, Christmas is one of the most widely celebrated festivals in the world, isn't it? Mm. And although I did discover recently, John, that the most celebrated festival in the world, which almost nobody would guess what it was, is actually Independence from Britain Day. So there are, <laughs> if you actually add up all of the countries that celebrate independence from British colonialism, that overwhelms the amount of people that celebrate Christmas. So there's a fact for you. But, but I think Christmas comes in a pretty close second. So... Even if you've never read this story, it's highly unlikely, especially in the English-speaking world, that you've not been influenced in some way by this story mm. in, in one way or the other. That this, this angel Gabriel, and even that name, I mean, that's a, that's, that name has entered your classic. It's, it's a name that people call their children, isn't it? Gabriel. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing. And, and, and what I do love that the story opens up with this uh, messenger of God, Gabriel, mm. finding mm. Mary. In now, there's a, there's a lovely little tension here because because the, the the text says the city of Nazareth. The the word there is polis, and you're and you're going well. Actually, mm. yeah, all our research points to the idea that this is absolutely one hundred percent not a city. That this was a small a small village, and and research seems to point to the idea that this was mm. maybe. As, as few as 300 people living in Nazareth, certainly off the main trading route of its day. The perfect place for Joseph to take the baby Jesus and hide him, which, of course, we know yes. from the Matthew account, that's exactly what he does. He hides him from the threat of Herod's. And yet the, the angel finds Mary in a world that is small, remote, hidden, and brings this incredible message there. And I, I can't help but notice that, David. I, I love that as an opening idea that Mary, mm -hmm. in a sense, is not jumping up and down uh, looking for the Lord, but she's in this nowhere place and the Lord finds her. The Lord is drawn to her. The Lord is attracted to her because mm -hmm. of something that's going on. And I love this language. You are highly favoured, verse 28. And in verse 30, you have found favour. With mm. God and an encouragement, an encouragement to us all that wherever we live, we can have influence. We can live in the favor of God. We, we may not be noticed by the world around us, but we are seen by the eyes of the Lord. And I just love this idea that Mary isn't found in Jerusalem. She's not found in the hotbed of some metropolis. She's actually found in mm. really in the context of the culture of her day, a nowhere place. And yet the Lord finds her speaks to her because he sees something in her. And I find that beautifully attractive. The the language of, of, of favor is, of, is of course, the language of grace. And mm. that we don't really say it in English this way. You, it would sound where you have found grace with God. We prefer to yeah. translate that notion as, as favor. But if you think about grace as unmerited reward at some, mm. at some level. So the word grace, I think, has been misappropriated a lot of times. So we, we talk about grace as free 
very often. And that sometimes gets us in problems, I think, with within Christian tradition, because we read free as I therefore can do what I like with it. And we get ourselves all caught up in all sorts of tangles. John Barclay, who massively helped me with this, talks about what do we mean by grace? We mean unmerited, without regard yeah. for worth. Mm. So this, so so you have been found worthy in the eyes of God, but not on your own basis. On, mm. Actually, that says something about God, not mm. something about you. And actually, that's a really important point that that you're going to need to track with Luke, and also then to track with Acts is that. God chooses us because of who he is. God rescues humanity because of who he is, not because of who humanity are. So the whole thing's a grace movement, isn't it? It's right. And I often wonder when I see Luke's emphasis on grace, I just wonder how much of that is shaped rocking around in the hull of a boat with St. Paul. Paul going, yeah, that's that's grace too, Luke, and that's yeah. grace too. And Luke, Luke saying, I'm being facetious here, but Luke saying, I'm going to write a book about Jesus. And Paul's saying, well, it has to have a lot of grace in it, Luke. Make sure you write about grace. But <laughs> nope. holding that sense of the unmerited favor, so, so Mary, and it, Mary is chosen not because of who she is, but because of who God is. That's quite an important point, I think, for us. But there's a contrast. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's a contrast that Luke is intentionally trying to to create. Luke chapter 1, you get this kind of brief intro. And then really when the story starts, in the days of King Herod of Judea, right? So we start chapter 1 with this reference to the days of King Herod, but we find ourselves at the key point in chapter 1 in Nazareth, the very opposite of where King yeah. Herod is, yeah. a village of a couple hundred people uh, in the dirt. And then and then you turn over to chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus. And like, yeah. wow, that's that's quite a, quite a statement. But by by the midpoint of chapter 2, guess what? We've got we we've got a child in a manger and shepherds coming to mm-hmm. worship him. The very opposite of Emperor Augustus. And then in chapter 3, in the 15th reign of Emperor Tiberius when Pontius Pilate was governor, we get some guy in, well, less than, less than fancy clothes in the desert <laughs> announcing the coming of God. I can't help but think that the, the little sort of point that you make there is not one that a listener should see as a throwaway point. Mm. I think Luke is drawing an intentional contrast Mm. here that look at where Jesus is happening in contrast to perhaps all the places you would expect this story to happen. Do you think, do you think that's uh, intentional? I I do. And and I think if you, if you look at the gospel of Luke throughout, there is this beautiful status reversal dynamic that goes on mm, all the time in Luke's gospel. And some of our listeners will, will be aware of that. Maybe others mm. discovering that for the first time, but he's always setting up almost contrasting ideas. We've touched on some of that in the parables and in the miracles. Mm. And I think that's, that's going. And this idea is introduced to us right at the beginning. You get these massive political juxtapositions going on don't you this is the might of rome this is this is the juggernaut <laughs> that is rolling over the known world and crushing everything in its path and it would be another 400 years before this great empire vanishes disappears and it looks impregnable it looks impossible to overcome yes. and yet you get this this teenage girl engaging <laughs> with 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 god and 
and she's about to bear the son of the Most High. So having been introduced to Caesar, she's going to be the one who bears the son of the Most High God. And she's going to do it in a sort of fringe of the empire position and from a background that at this stage wouldn't threaten her next door neighbor, let alone threaten the might of Rome. <laughs> so, so you are getting these beautiful, uh, meta feels here. And if we just rush into the story, Mary had a baby and we all lived heavily ever after, then, then we miss how Dr. Luke is positioning the narrative for us, which is a, beautifully contrasted with the characters that are already being introduced to us. If you were going to start a revolution to take over the world, <laughs> you would not start it in Nazareth, no. is really what you're saying, John, isn't it? And, and that, by sure. the way, is biblical. John chapter totally. 1, verse 46, and Nathaniel says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? <laughs> For sure. And of course, we, we have reflected in our parable series of, and I think we touched on it in Miracles, where Jesus said, what's the kingdom of God like? It is like a woman who needs some yeast into the mm. dough, and it changes the whole thing. And yeah. and you get this this sense of it's the smallest seed planted in the ground, but it becomes a tree mm. that houses the birds of the air. So you, you, you yes. get this definite feel at the beginning of the of the birth story of Jesus of very unspectacular context. A teenage girl, probably in our culture, not in hers, she would have been regarded as a woman in her culture, but a teenage girl in our culture, a couple that are betrothed and relatively poor, and they're living in a place that doesn't have a zip code or a postcode. And But <laughs> what, what what they're about to start will change the universe, will change the world. Mm. It is it is an incredible, an incredible beginning, one we shouldn't shouldn't miss the power of, I think. And, and I feel like it's even important that there is a point there for Jesus followers today that when we get caught so often into, oh, there was a phrase went around a little while ago about the, the role of the church was to make Jesus famous, right? Mm. And, mm. and I understand what was being attempted with a statement like that. But mm. the truth is, when you read Luke's gospel, you get the impression that that fame is not something that Jesus set out to to achieve. And actually that that sort of fame was there, but instead he chose to do a different whole strategy. And I feel like we should be alert to that as Jesus followers, that maybe the way that you would naturally choose to do things. As, as, a, as a regular person in the, in the modern world of marketing and Instagram influencers, you read the nativity stories and you almost are forced to think, I don't think I would have done it like this. <laughs> yes. Yes. And of and, course, and, uh, yeah, go on. Sorry, sorry. No, I mean, so you would say, I don't think I would have done it like this. And as you talked about the status reversal, well, how how deep are you willing to allow the status reversal to go? And maybe even just our ways of perceiving fame and influence need revised as a result of Luke's telling of the Christmas story. One of the beautiful truths at the heart of the status reversal of, of Luke's version uh, of the birth story is that Jesus is birthed at, in into an empire that would use might and force and the sword and coercion mm. and intimidation and strength to establish itself. Mm. 
And there, there is something beautiful that actually the revolution that will ultimately touch the nations of the world is starts in, in the womb of, of a virgin girl from a village that wasn't even on the map of her day. So that gives us confidence in the providential plan and purpose of, of the Lord that he relentlessly works even in the unlikely, even in what looks like the unspectacular or even innocuous. Mm. He yes. is at work and he can do this. And no one could have guessed that the, the young girl pregnant with her betrothed young husband was was carrying mm. what she was carrying. So it is it is a remarkable when you see it in the in the macro level, it is a remarkable, mm. remarkable beginning. And of course, it's for Mary as well. So all the points that we're making as to why you wouldn't do this in Nazareth appear to be, you know, verse 29, Mary was, I mean, the, the Greek word is, he's almost troubled or perturbed, perplexed are the options. Like, wait a minute, like, <laughs> have you got the wrong address? I was trying to find a store yesterday and typed the, the, the name of the store into maps and, and it tried to take me to somewhere in Idaho rather than the store that I was looking for, which I knew was about 15 minutes away. <laughs> and Mary almost has that, like, wait, wait a minute. I, I, I get what, I, I see what's happening here. And Mary is troubled. And then we get this little insight that she pondered, which I, I really I really like. She, dia uh, logizomai is the Greek. And this logizomai word is, is where we get uh, this sort of logic, considering, pondering, working out, deliberating. I love this instant introduction to Mary. Let me say it, let me say it like this, because there's, there's a lot of depth, I think, to, to explore in here. One thing I notice about Mary, which is fascinating, is the angel says to her, don't be afraid. But yeah. interestingly, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, John, interestingly, she's one of the very few characters in the Gospels or in Scripture, actually, that sees an angel and actually the text doesn't report that she is afraid. Right? So almost as if when the angel, they, you know, Zachariah, when he meets the angel, he's terrified. Right? And it's, there's almost a sort of subtle humor in angels just get used to saying, don't be afraid. But the one thing the text hasn't told us about Mary is that she's afraid. Instead, what we get from Mary is she tries to kind of make sense of this. She yeah. tries to logically work it out. And I love the contrast of, of all these appearances to angels to men terrify them, but to Mary, she's just a little troubled by this and then tries to figure out what the angel's on about. No, and, and it might explain the difference in the reaction to Mary from the angel Gabriel and the reaction to Zechariah. You know, Zechariah mm. is fearful and then reacts in a doubtful way. Whereas yes. Mary ponders and asks a really sensible question, <laughs> which doesn't get the reaction. So clearly, Zechariah's question is a question of doubt fueled by fear, mm. whereas Mary's question is a question, we could argue, of faith fueled by this sense of, well, I'm hearing what you're saying, so you need to explain this to me. So, so, and what's striking, of course, is she's not troubled or agitated by the angel. She is agitated and troubled by the words. So it's the mm. words that are getting to her, which again shows the level of this woman's spirituality. Yes. I would also argue it's pointing to her intelligence. It's pointing to yes. the facts. Hold on. This woman is, she may be young, 
but she's she's really already moving into hold on let me try and work out what's going on here rather than mm. reacting in any superficial way her reaction seems to draw gabriel further into the conversation in a way that that allows this to move to its conclusion very very quickly and i think it says mm. a lot about who mary is mary is thoughtful intelligent and i th- i would argue faith-filled she she is yes. reacting yes. in a faith-filled way to an unusual an unusual approach and this goes back to this is the contrast i think you're 100% right to see the contrast that you have and this might speak to what we we're saying by way of our preamble you have the the priest the man the the mature zachariah and then you have the woman the the, all we know about her is that she's engaged to a man called Joseph and she lives in Nazareth and she's and she's a virgin. That's all we actually know about her. Mm. But I think it's safe to say not a priest. <laughs> yeah. And so and and she and she's and she's young, which of course in, in the ancient culture isn't normally associated with wisdom. And and so and there is a again a status reversal. The person that should respond well responds completely like Zachariah gets himself in a world of mess, uh, including not being able to speak for another nine months because because he just can't get his head around with Angel's message. And and the Angel's message to Zechariah is much less startling than the Angel's message to Mary. I think Luke wants you to see that contrast, that, that here you see the two stories told one after the other and one is the correct way to respond to the word of God, and another is is, is not so much. Totally. Fortunately, Zechariah gets a second go, doesn't he? So he does. <laughs> he does, and that's back to grace, isn't it? That's back to grace. And 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 I would sort of so you know in your in your reflection on grace, that unmerited generosity and gift of the Lord to us, and I would totally one hundred percent back that. But but within this, and this is where I would sort of is is there a pause here? Is there a sense here? That even though there's this generously given favor of the Lord to to us that we don't merit, does this suggest? Does her reaction to the angel suggest that there is something in her attracting the Lord? And mm-hmm. and I I wouldn't want to run away from that idea. So again, that's a dangerous idea to formulize. Oh, if I can work out how to attract the favor of God. Then I can press this, this, this button and get God's favor. And I don't think that's what we should be pursuing here. But I think there is something in Mary that is attractive. There must have been, there must have been many sexual virgins in, in first century Israel. So why her? Now, of course, we could argue, well, that's just God's prerogative. Or, or of course, there could be something attracting the Lord to her that is more than her physical and sexual purity, but there is something attracting the Lord because there's a heart issue. And I think when we come to her song, we see that really come to the fore because you've yes. got a young woman here who clearly is dynamically spiritual. She she seems to know the Lord. She seems to know the scriptures. She seems to really have a sense of being able to be confronted, whatever Gabriel looked like. She's able to withstand that confrontation and not react Mm -hmm. in the normal fearful way. But actually her reaction is one of thoughtful, ponderous intelligence to the, Mm -hmm. to the proposition being made by Gabriel. And I think that is leaning into who she is. I think there's something in Mary 
that is attracting the favor of the Lord. So I wouldn't want to overcook that. I wouldn't want to build my house on mm. that, but neither would I want to reject that as an idea. I think that's lurking around in the text there. There's there's something about this particular woman. I mean, Luke doesn't fill in those details for us at the introduction, but by like you say, by the end, Mary is the one who she well, she sticks with Jesus. She she navigates everything with Jesus. There's there's a quote from Scott McKnight about Mary when he talks about how Mary is often presented as this kind of what's the phrase maiden mother meek and mild, and how that actually misrepresents the Mary that we meet in yep. Scripture. And so yep. McKnight, Scott McKnight in in a piece called The Real Mary. He's like, well, actually, this this blessed Mary wears ordinarily clothes, right? But she utters poetry fit for political rally. She goes toe to toe with Herod the Great. She reprimands her son, her Messiah son, for hanging around at the temple. She 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 follows her faith to tell him to sort out the wine situation at a wedding. She takes her children to Capernaum to rescue Jesus from death threats. She follows him all the way to the cross. Mm-hmm. So so she is she's showing us something about the way that she is that isn't isn't how we've represented her through through history Um, for sure and doesn't it sort of climax david i mean that idea you've just you've just summarized for us and the fact that mary's in the upper room gets filled with the spirit as well in in Acts chapter two that's all going on uh, it doesn't it climax for us in our story? I mean, verse 38, I, I can't read verse 38 without being moved emotionally. Mm. And I've read it hundreds, hundreds of times. And that is not an exaggeration mm. where she says, you know, I am the Lord's servant. May it mm. happen to me according to your word. I mean, I am the Lord's servant. This is I, I can't hear that and not hear an echo of Moses. When, when the Lord mm. speaks to Moses out of the bush, Moses says, here I am. Hineni in Hebrew. It's, it's this sort of, I'm here. And 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 of course, then the contrast here is, of course, Moses says, I'm here to the Lord and then proceeds to argue with the Lord for the next sort of couple of chapters of Exodus to the point where the Lord gets slightly exasperated with him at the end of that. Here's Mary, <laughs> a teenage girl, a young girl, a young woman, and here she is saying, I am the Lord's servant. I mean, this is this is not oh. just her saying, oh, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Let, let's go for it. She's, she's embracing something here. She's embracing a spiritual identity. She's embracing an idea that is resident throughout the Tanakh, throughout the, the Hebrew Bible. Yes. One of, I am the Lord's servant. This is not just me going, oh, yeah, yeah, do what you want. No, no, I am the Lord's servant. I want to honour Adonai, I want to follow yes. him. I want to serve him. I want my life. Let it be according to your word. I mean, verse 38 of Luke chapter 1 is is for me some of the greatest words spoken in the whole <laughs> of the scriptures. The whole yes. of the scriptures. And yes. they're not spoken by a scholar. They're not spoken by a hero deliverer. They're not even spoken by a man. They're spoken by a young woman who clearly has a deeper relationship with Adonai then the text is explicitly giving us. And I think our our listeners should lean into that. Our listeners should embrace the fact that we're not just looking here at a, at a young girl who happened to be a virgin. We are looking at a girl who is a virgin, but she happens to be deeply spiritual. She happens to be a deeply mm-hmm. committed follower of the Lord. 
and walking in some sense of personal covenant relationship with him, not just corporate relationship through the covenant. So uh, to me, it's all over that. And I think then your description of Mary and what she does throughout the gospel story only backs all of that up. She is more Mm. than a mother. She's more than a wife. She is a woman of God. And she Mm. is magnificently representing that in in the Lucan text. The danger of... of overemphasizing Mary, as perhaps some Christian traditions have done, is you end up with this this meek and mild mother. The danger of the other side is that you ignore her and you're just vaguely aware that Jesus has a mother and, yep. and you're missing this incredible presentation of of a real disciple of Jesus, actually. She becomes uh, a true disciple of her own son with mm. with the way that she is. And even in your description in verse 38, you can't help but but feel some of the Isaiah mm. allusions there sure. of, of, of here I am, send me. And I think that the translators are trying to draw us towards those parallels because I think Luke intends you to feel them, that, that, that she is... She is moving in the true prophetic traditions of the Old Testament. Mary is yeah. here, and yeah. and I, I like that a lot. So two two other things. One really quickly. Let's just jump into even more controversy uh, for a second. The <laughs> I'm just trying to get us in trouble today, John. It feels like this is what happens when it's, it's cold. It's clearly, yeah, it's, I was going to say it's clearly the temperature doing that to you, David. That's absolutely true. The Greek word parthenos which is translated here in the text as virgin, okay? I have seen quite a few pieces over the years which pick up on the fact that the word parthenos kind of really probably just means young girl. And mm-hmm. and so people that have struggled a little bit with the notion of virgin conception, which is, to be fair, is actually the biblical, to be really correct, it's the biblical yeah. language's virginal conception of, of, of Jesus. These people have tried to get out of that, which, oh, okay, actually, the, the, the word parthenos doesn't really mean virgin as we would understand virgin. I mean, it just means a young, a young girl. And therefore, you don't really need to believe in the, the the virgin birth. This, have you encountered this idea um, oh, yes, in some of, of your reading? So, of course. So yeah. a couple of things I just want to make comment on that is that, number one, that's true, that Parthenos does probably just mean young girl. However, in the sort of culture of, of Jesus' time, there's really not a grand de- definitional difference between virgin and young girl. So we're we're imposing interpretation to suggest that virgin and young girl in those times are different things. Bear in mind, we're talking the difference between young girl and virgin. We're probably talking about pre-teen, early teen girls. So in a culture that valued and protected children, the, the idea of, 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 of Mary being sexually active is is really problematic in that in yes. that sort of culture and and it would be in our culture at her True. age as well True. we're not talking about a 35 year old uh, lady we're talking about a, a young yeah. girl now so so that's that's a key piece to sort of track in there that that sometimes we're trying to be too clever in order to navigate our way out of the thing now yep. what's interesting and this is the reason I want to raise this because the english translation sometimes just for help, help us and then don't help us. Because verse 27, there is a Parthenos, a, a virgin or a young girl pledged to be married, and, and, and her name uh, was, was Mary, right? So, so we've, got, we, we've got that there in, in, verse, in, verse 20, in verse 27, right? But, and actually she's called a Parthenos twice in one verse, right? Mm-hmm. So 
even if you were to take a really clever interpretation and say, well, Parthenos doesn't mean virgin, it actually means it actually means young woman. Mary's then going to cause you some problems a few verses True. later in, in verse True. 34, which the English translations have Mary say, how can I this be since I am a virgin? And now we might assume that the word behind that, that use of virgin there is Parthenos. And we go, ah, yeah, Mary is just saying, how can this be? I'm very young. But yeah. actually... Mary uses a Greek idiom for yes. basically I've never slept with anybody, right? Yeah. So so here's the thing, whether or not, so let's just for argument's sake suggest that Parthenos does just mean young woman and it has nothing to do with sexual, sexual behavior. Yeah. Mary corners you out of that by verse 34 because she makes the problem to the angel is, as you said, this very perceptive question. I hear what you're saying, Gabriel. There's just one problem that I'm <laughs> dealing with here. <laughs> That, that that you're going to have to help me with. And so my kind of commentary on that, John, really quickly is just this. I think Luke corners you to ask you a question about the miraculous. Yes. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't think he gives you a choice. You, mm-hmm. either, you either believe that Jesus is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in Mary's life or or you don't, but he doesn't give you a way to read this story where Jesus is just a normal birth. And in one sense, let's just get that out of the way in chapter one, because by the end of this story, I'm going to ask you to believe that that child came back to life after he was crucified. <laughs> so, so so, stretch out your, your view of the miraculous, because I'm not going to give you a way out. I mean, that's how I read that, John. I don't know if that's unfair. Totally. But <laughs> no, no, I, I, I wouldn't even go anywhere near unfair. I think that's exactly what Luke is doing. And as if to enforce that from a from a almost a supernatural point of view, if we if we go do, further down into the into the story that we've read today, Elizabeth, mm. when Mary walks into Elizabeth's presence, it says mm. the baby leaped, as you rightly mm. said at the time, the one who would be known as John the Baptist leaps within her womb, and Elizabeth mm. is filled with the Holy Spirit. So you get mm. a prenatal response from the person we'll know as John to the presence of the prenatal son of the Most High in the womb of Mary at this stage only three months pregnant. And then you, Elizabeth gets filled with the Spirit, which is a, an action associated with, with the work of, of Jesus in, in, in terms of mm-hmm. the later Luke and Corpus. So you get this dynamic idea of this leaping, this unmissable idea that, that this isn't just John kicking it's a leap. It's it's the prenatal John responding to the prenatal Jesus. So if you are prepared to link the language, Son of the Most High, the, the fact that Mary herself says, I have not known a man. That's the literal translation, isn't it, of that verse mm-hmm. 34. Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody. That's the idea. Sometimes we would say in Belfast to know in the biblical sense. And, and that's exactly that, <laughs> that sort of idiom that you're referring to. I haven't known anyone. And so the Holy Spirit will will come upon you. And then as she enters the presence of Elizabeth, we get this supernatural reaction. We get a prenatal mm. baby responding to another prenatal natal baby. And the mother of the first prenatal baby gets filled with the Spirit. I mean, Dr. Luke is leaving you with nowhere to go on this. This is a supernatural mm-hmm. moment. And he he in- encourages us to abr- embrace the supernatural nature of this moment from the very get-go, from the moment Gabriel appears to Zachariah 
and off we go. And the first four chapters of, of Luke's gospel are saturated with the charismatic activity of the Holy Spirit. And we're getting miraculous intervention right across the story. So this this is not coincidental. This is not accidental. This, I think, is very intentional and deliberate from, from Dr. Luke at his theological position here. So, John, I feel like we've skirted about as close as we can with idioms to losing our PG rating. And so <laughs> the, uh, why don't we land this episode here and then we'll be back in the next episode to jump from this encounter that Mary has with Elizabeth into her response, which is perhaps one of the most beautiful pieces of scripture that, that we, could, we could potentially read.